Um, so I just want to start with a thank you um, to Koyo and to her team for the invitation, um, but also for all their support in the lead up um, to this. Uh, I have five month old twins and I have to say that past, present, future has taken on a whole new meaning. So um, I really appreciate all their support um, in allowing me to just kind of be here with you guys uh, for this discussion. Um, in light of that, I made a few notes uh, for a very brief introduction. Um, what I've asked these fantastic panellists to do is actually come with uh, five to ten minutes uh, around their own practice so that we can share that with you and it gives you all something to bounce off so that we'll have questions and it'll be hopefully quite a rich conversation afterwards as well. Um, okay, so notes. Pondering the title. Writing into history. Still writing in spite of history. Writing histories, writing her stories. There's a weight in the title that forces heavy questions. Who's history and who's writing into it? Who makes the incision and who owns the monolith? What force is necessary? Must violence beget violence? Our panelists scatter the very idea that history is a singular narrative by writing the stories that they themselves need to hear. Speaking to and for themselves, unapologetically, they embrace writing as an act of inscription. And by writing, we may consider many forms of inscription as a means to express the self, print, sound, dance, text, song, music, pictures, speech, and so on. And history here is very much present, living, evolving, here to be played with, spoken to, disregarded or interrogated. So as I said, I've asked each of the, the panellists to introduce their work. Um, I wanted to begin with Etienne, uh, simply because the archive is too often where we imagine that history ends up. Um, and yet I think in the work that you do, there's very much a sense that the archive is alive. History is living and it's at our fingertips. It's there to be remixed, as you might say. And you said in the past that the archive is always generative. Um, and I think in this discussion, we might consider that history is too. Um, and then actually what I find fascinating about this panel is there is an increasing sense of liveness, which is why I've had you last, Belinda, you might have wondered. <laughs> but actually because I think it's interesting to think about how live practices weave their way through a discussion around history um, and history in the making. Um, and then, so I think we'll, we'll start by going through each of the presentations and I've just asked as a way of um, getting the conversation going and relating to this idea of writing into history, um, I've asked each of um, the panellists just to say a few words around their own kind of expanded writing practices. I think we'll think about it in that sense um, and how they may relate to or kind of interact with a sense of history. Um, yeah, so Etienne, if you'd like to, to take okay. over. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Yeah. An increasing sense of liveness. <laughs> okay. okay. So um, I do a few different things, but it's probably the easiest way to talk about it is through the lens of this project, Decolonising the Archive. Um, the title's kind of interesting because I don't think you can actually decolonise an archive. I mean, it would kind of be like trying to decolonise Somerset House or something like that. You know, it's not, um, it's not possible, but then I think in trying, then something else comes out. So I am an archivist, I'm a trained archivist, and as far as I know, uh, there's, no, there's no figures on it, but apparently in the UK there's somewhere between three and five archivists of, well, particularly from African or Caribbean background that are practicing. So 
I'm a rarity, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, and when I first kind of started working with archives and digging around in them, um, I started to find them more and more problematic. So I guess my relationship with archives it begins as a very problematic one because it's kind of exactly what Hansi was saying. Sort of, <laughs> who, who's collecting this stuff? Who's it for? How are they collecting it? What's being done with it? Um, so there's lots of questions around that. Um, I've got a film that... So it, Decon and Nightmares in the Archive is... It's not just me. There's kind of a collective of us. And there's a film that we made kind of, I guess, meditating on that. So I'll play that first and then maybe come back and talk a little bit about it. Is it the green button? Is that what's... Let's find out. I guess so. It's a green button. <laughs> Picture me. Write me. Digitize me. But whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Get me right, correct, bright. Put my truth and stories to light. But whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. A whole lot of perspective comes my way. But who reflects? Is the copyright you must detect. So whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Polarization and intolerance are not hands that can hold me forever, though they may try. Oh, how they lie. But my magic is simple, so it escapes the watchful eye. Whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Think to yourself what messages lie here. Think to yourself, oh dear. Think to yourself, oh dear. Think to yourself, oh you dear. How I live on to tell the tale, despite being put in an early grave. <laughs> Whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Whilst you archive me, don't undermine me. Don't undermine me. Don't undermine me. Don't undermine me. So we put that together thinking about, I guess, power relationships, but also about potential, because, I mean, we purposely looked at those kind of anthropological photographs as it's a really, you know, the, the way they're collected is sort of really clear that it's problematic. But then I think even in so-called modern archives, even they might not be connecting anthropology in that way, but the, those same power relationships still, still exist. So we're kind of thinking about that at one level and then on another level thinking about, I guess, the potential of that same material that's collected in quite problematic ways sometimes um, to, I guess, uh, to activate and actually do something, for want of a better way of saying it, a little bit more, more positive with, with that, with that um, material. 
So, I'm, my background is actually in music, and I think most of the people that are involved in this project are kind of, have got a musical background and other arts as well. Some, there's some theatre practice in there, and there's some more kind of visual practice in there too. And what I've started to do, what I've done for my PhD as well, is kind of start to look at what I do when I make music or when I used to DJ as well for quite a long time, when I DJ in terms of like, look at the energy of, uh, of, of music or in this case, let's say like a record or something and how, what makes me select that at a particular time and then activate it. And I've, start, I've realized that that's kind of how I sort of developed the relationship with archives and through digging through material, looking for things that resonate and then thinking about what can be done. So the next step in, term, in, in, ter, in this kind of active practice is then thinking about those traces, what kind of narrative we want to put together and want to sequence. And I was kind of reflecting on it today, and I think sometimes you read um, a way a historian's written about something, and it seems like this really seamless narrative. But then when you dig through an archive and you realise how much of them is in that narrative and it's not just like this kind of objective information that they've just put together and, oh, that, that's the story, is that there's so much of their kind of perception in that. Um, and so I guess we're kind of embracing that within our practice and just thinking, OK, there's this material here. What, what do we want to say with it? What do we want to do with it? And a lot of, I mean, I'll come in a couple of minutes, thinking about the kind of more, I guess, preservative, that what we classically think of an archive as something where you kind of keep things, keep things safe. But we've almost kind of gone the other way a little bit and focused on how to kind of get things out of the archive, how to engage people with the archive, how to um, use it to kind of, uh, I guess, reflect on our own practices and our own ways of being now and things that happen in society now. And sometimes that's providing context, and sometimes it's providing a kind of source of ideas that we might want to use in, in the present rather than fixing them in the past. Um, so this kind of idea of sustaining, because I was just talking about sort of preservation, and in a way, I guess my training as an archivist says that oh, to preserve something, you keep it locked away. People aren't allowed to touch it, or if they are, then they have to you know, wear gloves and sign sign in and be video recorded and all those kind of things. Um, but I'm quite into the idea of more kind of living ways of sustaining things. I think thinking about how by through activating material, then those ideas that or those kind of traces of the past kind of live on in spaces in the present. And I think one thing that we have not quite worked out yet but are working on, because I think to do that, you need to be able to kind of sustain community. So it's kind of about how do you create and sustain communities of interest for material as well, or bring, bring material into kind of spaces where communities are and kind of embed them within there. Um, so yeah, that's at the moment what we're thinking about when we're thinking about preservation. But I'm starting to, which I'll come to, I've got one more little clip to show you to explain a little bit about a project that I'm doing and working on now. And then I'll come to thinking about some of the more traditional ways of preserving, which also, I would say, need, uh, if not disrupting, then definitely at least looking at a little bit differently. So um, I'm going to show you this clip, and then I'll explain what it is after. I'm 
just look at it this way. You have this situation where we are trying to build a new society. We are trying to develop new attitudes, new values. We are literally trying to create a new man. So um, that was Maurice Bishop, and uh, for those of you who don't know, so he was Prime Minister of Grenada in the Caribbean, I think 1979 through to 1983, and then um, was killed. And but he came to become Prime Minister as he through a revolutionary process. And so the reason I've shown that clip is just to kind of rather than just say um, you know theoretically what how we approach things is kind of think, give a sort of more grounded example of what we do. So that process started through, by digging through the archives and selecting this, this material, because there was, at the time, well, I, was, I was speaking to someone in the audience actually just before about the George Padmore Institute, which is a kind of, um, it's, it's an archive that really shows the quality of kind of, I don't like the word radical, but I'm trying to think of a better one right now. So radical action sort of between the 1960s to sort of 1990. And there's some really interesting information there about this revolution um, and shows how it was a very much a kind of pan-African engagement um, in that revolutionary process in Grenada. So we were digging through that material. Um, then Damani Baker, who made a film called Still Bill, about Bill Withers, anyway, if anyone knows Bill Withers, um, who has his mother, uh, it turned out, had been in Grenada at the time of the revolution, and he'd made this kind of film through his personal archives about the, that revolution and um, also about her relationship with Angela Davis, who was also in Grenada at that time. So we basically put together this intervention where we screened that film as a beginning, and then workshopped the film but then also the material around it kind of thinking about some of those themes like quite strong themes like creating new men and new women like what does that mean or um thinking about um i guess that anti-corporate mentality that uh, and also the idea of kind of self-determination and doing for self all these ideas that are in that story we're looking at that sort of through the lens of that material and that project's still ongoing so that we workshopped that and we're now developing educational resources because that revolution, strangely enough, isn't taught in Grenada. And there's some Grenadians that have expressed interest in a resource to do that. So we're developing that and an online resource as well. So that's kind of just an example of the kind of way that we'd work with that sort of material. 
Um, I feel like I've talked a lot. Thank you, Etienne. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, that was a fantastic introduction to what mm -hmm. you're doing, and I want to come back and ask you some more questions about that, and I'm sure there's more questions here. Mm -hmm. um, but I think maybe if we now uh, move on to Sophia, and if you want to give a, a little snapshot around your work, uh, and then we can kind of uh, kind of build the conversation around that. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to talk about UMC and our practice. Um, so UMC is a biannual publication about women, art, and activism. It started in 2013 by myself, Rose Nordin, and Hiba and Sabah Khan. Hiba Lamara joined us later. And uh, initially, we wanted to make a publication that was about significant Muslim women in history. But really quickly, we realized we didn't really know about history, and it was like a really big undertaking. So we decided to make it um, a publication about the creative women who we know. Um, the magazine is thematic. Each issue has a different creative theme, and we encourage people to um, produce new work for it. Uh, half of the contributors are Muslim women, and the other half are any other women. Um, and it's a public call out for submissions, but also we approach um, people whose work we're interested in. Um, here are some examples of work and a picture of the publications. Uh, alongside, so the magazine is not for profit, but alongside it, we run a creative studio. Um, we run workshops, we do design work for galleries uh, and museums, and we um, deliver work. And um, we also produce our own publications aside from IMC. One of the publications that we've made is called The Library Was. Uh, it came out of a residency that we did at Open School East, and it was with um, a publisher called Bookworks. Uh, it gave us some creative space to work on um, a topic or area that we were very interested in. Uh, the publication is set in the future and it has materials from uh, like our past, our present, and then the future. It's, uh, it's like a mishmash of fiction and nonfiction. Uh, we're really interested in publishing practices outside of the standard contexts like uh, a place like New York, Berlin, Portland are very associated with self-publishing, but we were interested in uh, looking at different contexts. We have friends in Malaysia who we've hosted at DIY Culture several times, and uh, a residency opportunity came up, so we went to Malaysia for four weeks and interviewed a range of publishers, artists, and different practitioners, which resulted in this publication. Here's an example of a workshop that we've run at the Tate. We're interested in different types of technology as well, not just print. So this was a gift-making workshop. Um, and more recently, we've uh, started running a um, community printing press project in East London. It's called Rabbits Road Press because it's on Rabbits Road, not because we love rabbits. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a risograph printing press. And risograph printing, it's a bit like screen printing, but it happens in a machine, so it's much quicker. Um, and the ink colors sit on top of each other. It was. Uh, risograph machines were very popular in the 80s and they were used in churches and um, by political parties as a cheap way of getting color into their uh, ephemera. Um, this is a picture of the press. So we run public open access sessions at the press every Tuesday. Uh, it's currently fortnightly, but it was weekly when we had funding. Um, and what it is, it's from 2 o'clock to 7 o'clock. Anybody can come to the studio, and we teach them one-to-one -one how to use the machines, and they make five posters, and they take it away. And um, they are welcome to come back to the space any time on that day and use it as like a studio space, um, but also working on their own self-publishing projects. The, the space we're in is an old library, um, so it's nice that we're able to reopen it to the public. It's currently uh, owned by Boarts, and they use it as commercial studio space to the other uh, studios inside a 
academic run of it. Um, we took the printing press to the Museum of London um, earlier in the year, so it was nice to broaden the project because it's quite far out. It's in Manor Park, so it's nice to, to tell other people about it. And um, our, interest in, our interest in self-publishing um, is really about grassroots activities and encouraging other voices to emerge as well. So we run DIY, we co-curate DIY cultures with other Asians. It's an annual festival of zines um, and talks exploring the intersections between art and activism. Uh, this year we had 90 exhibitors, uh, which is it's a really nice meeting point for people who have different projects to collaborate and meet each other. And there's an exhibition that goes with that as well. Um, can we go to the other PDF? So we have a manifesto. We don't actually share this publicly anywhere. It's more like uh, guiding principles for ourselves. But I might just expand on a few of the points. So, um, so the first one, it says, to quote John LaRose, publishing is a vehicle to an independent validation of one's culture, history, politics, and sense of self. Uh, through Imxine, we try to create our own culture and content instead of just consuming what is out there. The second point is that it positions itself within a tradition of independent publishing by utilizing print and design as a tool to communicate messages and create communities. Um, we, we come, me, myself and Rose, we come from visual arts backgrounds, um, and we believe in the power of visual communication to educate, inform, and inspire. Independent publishing gives us full autonomy um, of what we want to produce and how to produce it, and also a means of distribution. Um, we've been able to build a small community, what you were saying about communities and how it's important for keeping, for like circulating ideas within lived spaces. Um, we've done it through having uh, lots of public events at our previous studios in South Kilburn and now at Rabbit's Road Press. Uh, it's an opportunity to bring people together to share, learn, and also just to have fun. Um, another point I might expand on. Number seven, IMC believes that permission is not needed in order for people to organize on their own terms and within their communities. We host events like Zine World and DIY Cultures. We haven't, been, we haven't waited for anybody's permission to do that. Um, and having a network and a community has allowed us to be able to do that, to put that event on, to have a broad range of people with different skills um, and ideas to, be, to participate in that. And it's allowed us to broaden our perspectives. Uh, number eight, BIMC recognizes the current sanctioned educational institutions perpetuate a culture of, in, of inclusivity and indebtedness which sustain racial and economic hierarchies. Uh, we don't know what the future looks like for education, but I know that I wouldn't have studied art at university if it cost £9,000. Um, we're, we're really interested in making, making um, alter, in supporting alternative sites of knowledge acquisition. Um, and... And that's what we, we do through our practice, I suppose. I think I'll end there. That's fantastic. Again, there's some really uh, brilliant points here, which I think we'll pick up again in conversation. Um, but I just, again, want you to have a little taste um, from each of the panellists. So, Belinda, if you want to share a little bit about your work, um, and then we'll have uh, more general discussion. Um, hi, everyone. Hey. All right. Uh, cool. <laughs> I was going for that high to drop again. Um, so, um, I'm... <laughs> really interested in um, uh, documenting, I guess, like um, the present for, you know, for the future, I guess, because that's history kind of like happening and also kind of like remembering, documenting to, to not forget 
um, things that have happened before, stories I've been told uh, by my mum, my family. Um, I was born in Zimbabwe, so it's kind of really exploring things I still remember about that time and kind of documenting it so that, because some things are starting to fade now. So I'm really interested in like preserving um, memories um, whilst exploring as well what, like, you know, what, what being, living in a different country means. Um, while, you know, coming from two different cultures, coming, being from London and being from Zimbabwe, um, what that means for my, for my work. Um, so I tend to do that by writing a lot about my family. Um, at the moment, I'm writing a lot about my mother, which is really interesting because I'm not quite sure she's going to get to read any of it. Uh, but I'm trying to be as candid and, and honest as possible. But I also write about my, uh, my grandfather and um, other people who came before me. So um, it's pretty much about, like, my personal history um, um, as opposed to, like, sort of a wider history. Um, I also do work with, um, with a friend of mine called Chiman Seda. We run a, a small literary organisation called Born Free, where we have uh, bi-monthly meetings with um, other people within our community who are writers as well, but obviously open to everyone to come. Uh, but we have an open mic and then we have some featured uh, poets read as well. We don't really, we're not really strict about it being poetry, but we do just have a special interest in that. But it can be um, fiction, it can be music, um, but as long as it's like written, uh, it's the written word. Um, so we've been operating for about three years now and um, it seems like it's growing uh, and we're really interested as well in, in, uh, in uh, collating sort of anthologies or like small zines, I guess, that kind of document all the other work that we've had before, just so that it's there. Because I think things can be quite fleeting, things happen and people experience them and have fun, but then actually it kind of disappears. Um, so it'd be quite good to capture that. Um, I'm also interested in like sort of, uh, cross, uh, sort of cross arts collaboration as well. Um, so I've done work with uh, musicians in the past, uh, a lot with live bands and uh, producers as well. Really interested in recording music. Um, well, not recording music, but like recording poetry with music. Um, I'm interested in, in, in that, in that uh, collaboration um, because uh, I just personally, just because I enjoy it. Um, and for me, it allows me a flexibility in terms of like how I expand, how I tell the story. I think a lot of the time in my work, I'm reading in front of people. Uh, in a very sort of like straightforward way, but with music, I guess there's room to expand that, expand the voice, expand the narrative, and maybe allow, you know, room for people to interpret in their own way, in a way that I think live reading is not quite the same. Um, yeah, so in terms of, uh, yeah, cross arts, I'm really heavily interested in that, and I'm hoping that with time it grows into to other, other, other arts as well, but at the moment it's mostly music, so I'm gonna play something afterwards. Um, so you can get a taste of that. Um, yeah, but I think I'm going to read a poem because I can think I'm just, like, better at that. <laughs> um, and then read something um, and then play something afterwards. Um, this poem I'm going to read next is um, about my grandfather and a time I lived with him when I was younger. A very special time when I lived in a town called Mashingo in Zimbabwe for, for a year or so with my grandfather and my grandmother. And it's just a little snapshot of him, really. It's not really about entirely, yeah, it's not about his entirety, but yeah. It's called um, Unlegalizing Mary Jane. You remember your grandfather's imprecise smile, teeth a yellowing white, like the sun's glare at high noon, lips almost black, like a night on a full moon. 
Mornings were spent tending to his fields before meeting afternoon under the shade of the musasa, armed with a worn leather-bound Bible, old newspapers in a worn leather pouch. Your assigned role, grab a piece of lit firewood from the kitchen hut for him to light what you thought to be newspaper-rolled cigarettes. You remember your grandfather's eyes. They had clouds in them, deep and grey, the sky of a storm brewing for hours. They never flickered at the first puff, but that yellowing smile would spread as the smell lingered like wet firewood. He would hum to himself like a man quietly praying, vibrating for rain. The night he died, you had not seen him for 10 years. You sat in your mother's garden, about to smoke your first spliff, your brother next to you in the broken chair. You watched him hold the thinness of the Rizzler between both forefinger and thumb, his hands like your grandfather's. The first puff made you cough till your eyes streamed. Your brother laughed before saying, relax, breathe through your mouth. By third in hell, you had found a new friend in an old smell that hung over the English night. You know what, yeah? They should legalize this shit. I read online it treats glaucoma, you know. You knew, but kept silent. Looked at your brother's inherited hands and realized your grandfather as a healer who had puffed his way through newspapers to make the clouds in his eyes rain out the bind of no longer seeing the world in the precise light of night and day. So um, I think in that poem, I was really interested in, and I think in my general practice, I was interested in what uh, the current means. I mean, I mean how the, our ancestors kind of like uh, ways of doing things affect how we do things. I think a lot of the time we behave in, in many different ways and we, we're not quite sure why, but I think it's kind of rooted in like those who came before us, whether it's indirect or direct. So I'm really interested in that. Um, I'm also interested in fusing that with, with the present and just trying to make it more relatable to myself, really, more than anything else. Um, and when I mentioned earlier that I'm writing a lot about my mother at the moment, it's also about exploring that relationship that we had when I was growing up. You know, she was this woman who had to leave Zimbabwe with her three children um, and sort of start a new life in a different place. And I think that placed a lot of different pressures on her, which were manifested in how we could relate to each other. And I've been really interested in writing about that process. It's been quite difficult, but it's also like quite necessary. Uh, and how that's really kind of affected how I navigate certain things now. I mean, we really are like, we, have, we, don't, we don't have a, a fraught relationship, but I think um, we also don't have the room, I think it's a cultural thing to be very honest about how we feel about each other, how we feel about certain things that have happened before or um, are happening. So I have these conversations with myself through the work. So I think the next um, clip, the song is gonna play, it's a collaboration between myself and a producer from South Africa called um, KR. Um, I was there two years ago and we just like got together and I read something of a, a beat that he made and we, we did it a few times and quite liked it. And um, I put it on SoundCloud. I think that makes me an official Are you musician. happy for us just to do two minutes? Yeah, this? for sure. Yeah, 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 of course. Great. So I would say maybe go to the middle part to play from there and then um, So from the middle, I'll say. Catching flies like a net in an old woman's kitchen. I sit light, unsure of the day I will fill up to the brim into a thing which overflows like river after rain. An ocean, maybe 
the water under a dry riverbed. How can I say, mother, you raised me but couldn't love me? When she says, those words went to hurt but to toughen. I love hollow like forgotten wells because how can you say, mother, you shrunk me? From bloom to shrapnel, how can you say, mother, you left holes in me so deep, nothing can ever grow, nothing can ever grow. Thank you, Belinda. Your, this, your work is so powerful. Um, it really moves me, so it's hard to even pick up the conversation after listening to that, but thank you for sharing it with thank us. Um, I think maybe we'll start with a question um, for you, Belinda, uh, because um, so the, the, as we heard, the title of this whole programme is The Conversationist, and here we're supposed to be talking about writing. Mm. Um, but I'm interested in um, that difference because you work between the, the written and the spoken word. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe just um, share a few thoughts about those different qualities, about how history can be written by the material in, in writing, but also the kind of ephemeral yeah. uh, with the spoken word. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm really interested in, in, in that. Um, and I think that... It, when we're talking about especially like sort of African histories as well, a lot of that is kind of like oral and it's been told. But so I think in the, in the, in the same way that this, the written can be like, you know, we think that it's, it's like uh, it lasts for, for forever or for long. I think the spoken too, but in a different way. Uh, but there's, um, there's stories that are still like, you know, myths and, and, and tales that are still persisting now from like centuries later. Mm. Uh, we know a lot about our families and our history through what's been told to us. Um, so for me, that's no different from like people speaking their stories in front of people. I, I don't think it's um, yeah. I think in a way that's that's it's, it's just as powerful as the written. Um, but what I like about writing is that it provides a space for the person sort of taking part in that narrative to really make up their own mind around that text because they have that in front of them and they can keep that and they keep going back to and for reference and keep communicating with it on so many levels mm. that are quite different from what from hearing I think so yeah because hearing is more temporal isn't yeah. it you hear and then it's gone or it becomes a memory yeah later. right and you can you can play around with that and it can fade but I think with the written it really kind of provides the the space for the reader and the writer to actually really kind of communicate in a very interesting way. Yeah, and how do you think, I guess that also kind of relates to some of the work you do with the archive, Etienne, mm -hmm. that relationship between ephemeral um, and all the material that you're dealing with. I think they 
kind of should always work together. Yeah. You know, like I don't see them as separate things. Mm. I just see that they they've got slightly maybe different functions or maybe different energies that they create. But um, you kind of almost you it was almost like one can't exist without the other at yeah. some level because you can't you know if you read something then that sort of becomes part of you and then you might speak it or act it or whatever. But in the same way, I'm not sure if I like the word ephemeral because I think mm. even. Yeah. Uh, I think you know music. It kind of be, you know you hear a track it be, that that track kind of becomes a part of you in mm. some way, and you might forget it for a bit, but it, all, it can come back. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I see them as kind of coexisting all the time and sort of bouncing off each other in a way, rather than being separate. Yeah, things. absolutely. I mean, I think what's interesting as well is the the way in which written text can be revised a lot more, mm. you know, and the spoken word is, it's happened, you know, it's, it's, it's been and it's gone, so mm. there's different accidents or happy accidents that happen in, in speech, I think, that maybe get erased in writing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I like something, something about energy, because like if I read a piece of Belinda's work as opposed to her speaking it, mm. then there's, there's sort of two different energies sometimes yeah. that you can get from those two experiences. So Absolutely. I think there's something interesting about the different energies they evoke as well. So I, I guess I sort of play with that with work I do with the archive in a kind of expanded sense. But yeah, yeah something to do with energy. And um, to go back to Whilst You Archive Me, um, mm -hmm. where you have it on the website, you, when you're in the introductory text, you say... Oh, what did I, what did I say? You say, um, <laughs> reflection can be the start of something beautiful, mm -hmm. which I thought was a nice sentence. And um, I wanted to ask you um, what you feel that the position of the colonised lends itself to particular kinds of reflection, Maybe how different truths come out and different kinds of beauty, um, and also how important you think it is that different faces are reflected in that history, in the histories that kind of come out of the archive? I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I guess all our work is based around the fact that different faces... Should, well, I mean, different faces are reflected, but I suppose it's about the power relationships that that happens with. Yeah. Um, so I guess part of what we're doing is exploring and trying to change those power relationships. Um, and I don't know, I need to... I think I need to... Because um, I think when I started, I was a little bit more, um, you know... Even now, still, I was just talking about it before, I'm very wary of trying to change institutions, although I think, you know, there's some change that can happen, but I'm, I'm sort of not under the illusion that you can change how that happens institutionally, but I'm kind of very interested in um, how, what you can do by creating your own kind of mm. space to kind of work through that. Um, so, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Could you remember the first part of that question? What was the first bit that you said? I think, you've, I think that was a really nice response. Uh, okay, cool, let's keep yeah. going. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I want to bring in Sophia. You um, made this really brilliant point, which is about when you were starting out and you said you wanted to talk about historical Muslim women and then you realised, OK, I don't know anything about history. But I wonder if your position on that has changed now you kind of reflect back on the work that you do and if you think that actually, perhaps on the one hand, you're now creating different areas of knowledge that could be used for those who write history in the future... Or maybe it's that you are indeed kind of producing knowledge that, you know, is writing history. Yeah, um, yeah I am more interested <laughs> in learning about, about those figures in history. And I hope that what we are doing will be used um, by people in the future to, to reflect and learn about what happened now. But for us, our practice is so based in the present because of um, 
the context that we're living in. I mean, Muslim women writers, if you're writing for like a mainstream newspaper, there are certain topics that you will be asked to write about. There are certain, uh, and it's normally like Muslim related, and you're not given the freedom and the scope to write about things that truly interest you. Mm. So for us, it's so important to make a, um, a space in the current context where we are allowed to develop into people who have um, explored our own interests and contributed to history. Um, so I think our, our focus is very much based um, in the present. And I don't know how that's going to be interpreted in the future. I mean, yeah. we take a lot of inspiration from the past. Like. Uh, one of the groups we really admire is Sea Red Women's Workshop, who were a feminist print collective working in the 70s. Um, the way they worked together, the work they produced, how they were working outside of... Like, the collective's really interesting. They, all, they made posters, but none of the posters were copyrighted to any individual. It was just property of the collective. And they were saying men at the time, their contemporaries didn't understand that. They were like, yeah, but who drew this poster? Like, who did the writing? Who made it? And they were like... Wow. So it's interesting to... Um, yeah, to try and find those models that were working in a different way. Um, we were also really inspired by like New Beacon Books and all of the publishing that they did and the fact that they weren't propped up on government funding, which we know like other POC organisations mm -hmm. at the time were, and how others kind of collapsed around them and they were able to um, sustain themselves because they were, they were independent. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that's um, the kind of next thing I wanted to ask you, which is how important it is to be independent. Um, you know, self-publishing, you're owning your own platform and also creating space for other people to, you know, to share different voices. Um, how important is that to you, do you think? It's very important because as soon as... I mean, the whole reason why we, we're into self-publishing is because we bypass all of those gatekeepers and we're able to have control of what we're writing and... We keep the magazine not for profit because it allows us to have that that space. Like each issue funds the next issue. It's not a money making venture, so it won't collapse or mm. it doesn't have this pressure attached to it. Um, yeah, very important to yeah. be independent. And I just wanted to uh, um, maybe have a discussion between the two of you because uh, Etienne, you were saying that you, you're not interested in trying to kind of change institutions. And I know, in Sophia, in your um, manifesto, there are quite a lot of points around wanting to kind of make structural change to some of these kind of power relations and hierarchies. And yeah. I guess on some senses, I mean, one of the questions in the title is writing into history. And I talked about an incision, but there's also a question of insertion, insertionism, which can in itself become problematic. Do you think it's, is it important, and Belinda, please feel free, you know, if it interests you to jump in on this as well. Is it important to think about um, revising or inserting yourself into somebody else's history, or um, is it just as important to think about creating your own spaces and your own structures and kind of telling your own stories? I think I said less interested. Yeah, I okay, less. Not interested but I just thought, okay, great opportunity but, um, for maybe a little punch-up, debate, yeah. I don't know, conversation. No, no, so. not, no, 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 fight, no fighting, no fighting. <laughs> um, I said less interested. I, but I well, think, but thinking about those two positions, I think... I think from, yeah, from my perspective, you've kind of got to create that personal community space to kind of work through certain things. 
before you can do that insertion process if you want to really still retain the kind of quality of what you're doing. Because I think it's really easy to kind of get sucked into this thing of, oh, okay, we'll take that bit of money to do that and that bit of money. And all the time your work's kind of getting co-opted at the same time. Whereas I think if you've kind of developed a fairly solid base independently, then people will see that and want some of that. And then there's that sort of opportunity for insertion, but you're not kind of dependent on it. And I think what I learned through you know, nerding out on archives for a long time of uh, sort of African and African-Caribbean heritage organisations is that there's this kind of cycle of they're funded, they do some work, the funding goes, they stop. They're funded, they do some work, the funding <laughs> right. goes, they stop. And it's just like, OK, do you really want to keep perpetuating that or do you kind of want to find different ways to kind of keep your work going, yeah. including some insertion, but also just, you know, you've got your own space as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Like, as long as your focus is not on that, is not on acceptance, it's more of um, having your own practice, protecting your own practice by not being on the payroll of any like big mm-hmm. institution, and then just like working as a freelancer <laughs> and taking their money yeah. when it's <laughs> <laughs> now. Um, this question I've, I want to ask Belinda, but I think it uh, equally relates to to each of you because um, just reading your bios, I know that. Um, you're all kind of engaged in education in some way um, or another um, alongside your practice. And I'm kind of interested to know um, how you kind of see that strand of your work. Because, Sophia, you're a primary school teacher, so maybe you don't even see that as part of your practice. Um, Do you see the two sides related, but um, specifically in relation to seeing informal or formal education as kind of sites potential sites for activism um, in relation to the writing of history. Because I know that the history that I learned at school was a very hastily scrawled Battle of Hastings, 1060 skips, you know, that state school <laughs> standard in the UK. But actually, there's, there's other ways of kind of creating insurgencies, and especially in the work that you do, and, and thinking about how that can feed through. Yeah, um, so I work uh, facilitating poetry workshops um, and creative writing workshops. I've also worked within... Um, you know, a couple of secondary schools and six form, and one sixth form college. Uh, and I find that it's quite interesting, my approach to, like, you know, when I'm doing something different with a, with a youth group or something or, you know, something outside of that structure, it's quite interesting, the approaches, because I find that when I'm in that space that's not really dictated by the state, it's really free. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really interested in, like, providing a place for, crea- facilitating a space for creativity for those taking part as opposed to actually teaching creative writing mm. or saying this is how you write more about like, hey, can it just go in your mind and explore and let's maybe try and make something afterwards. Whereas within the school, you kind of the approach is more, so I, I like, so that's when it gets a bit, when we're talking about activism, I guess, I, I'm also not interested in that rigidity, but also if it's a job, I can't turn up and say, I'm not going to go with what you want me to do. So mm. it's about finding ways of being flexible within that structure. So I'm really interested in finding ways to be quite a little bit subversive within that. and Because yeah. once you're in that space with the children or the young people, it's very kind of like removed from the other world. So what we do in that space for me is already quite radical because it's very different from what they're being told to do mm. outside of that, which is very... You know, when I spent a year in Evelyn Grace Academy in Brixton, it was very much about grades, 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 numbers, numbers, numbers. And that, that just didn't affect the, te- the students, but the teachers as well. Yeah. So there wasn't really that kind of like open relationship between the students and the teachers, because it was kind of very much like, you know, we've got to meet targets. Uh, whereas when they came into this other space, it was very much like, this is not um, marked, this is no right or wrong. 
it's just a space to be. But then also it had to be structured in a particular way that I did with that school's regulations. But that space in itself was already so completely different from everything else that we're engaging with yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. So in that sense, like, yeah, I think you can find ways of just subverting it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, something I really found in being, because I've been a teacher for quite a while, and uh, there is room within the curriculum to teach about whatever you want, basically. Like, you can fit it in if you're clever. Mm. But, um, but when I was doing my teacher training, most of the people on my course were white women. Like that was, and when, you, when you're a teacher, you bring yourself to the job so much mm. um, in terms of what you want to discuss, what things you're going to focus on. Your values come out so much. Um, so I'm kind of skeptical because I, I uh, until the makeup of the teachers change, it, I don't know if, if it's gonna if it's just having talking about Mary Seacole for a day is mm. gonna make a big difference. Mm. Um, so, so in so many contexts, the lives of the teachers are so removed because I worked in a, quite a few schools in Lambeth, are so removed from the lives of the pupils, yeah. and I'm just like. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think art is a really good in way, and especially when schools have. Because I currently work in a school in Peckham with uh, with an after school club, mm. and because it's not on curriculum time, no one cares what you do. So it's like it's really valuable, um, and I think you bringing those in ideas in through art is quite subversive and quite an easy way of uh, approaching yeah. this sort of yeah. subject. Did you want to add to yeah, that? Yeah, no, because I've worked in sort of formal education and I also teach in supplementary school and there's such a massive difference and kind of what you were saying about, I mean, I've taught in sort of both secondary school and primary sort of formal schooling and there's certain things that you, you bring up and you can just sort of see the teachers not comfortable because <laughs> they normally I'm sort of parachuted in as a facilitator rather than to teach all day and you can kind of feel there's an uncomfortableness about you know what you're what you're talking about whereas I think you know the informal education that I've, the kind of supplementary school work I've done is a lot it's not free because there's still a curriculum and there's still things that you need to need to be hit but in terms of the structure and I suppose the understanding of the people running the school of what the background of the young people is and mm. kind of the things that are going to nurture them. Um, yeah, it's just so different. So um, I, think I, I think it's important to do both, but I think I'll probably enjoy teaching supplementary a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just going to end uh, with a question and then I think it would be nice to maybe open up in case there's any questions uh, from everybody here. Um, you've all kind of brought up the idea of community and like how you build community around what you're doing. Um, and I just, yeah, I thought, uh, I mean, I picked out a quote from Sophia, but you've all actually brought it up in relation to your work um, around kind of building, socialising um, and building community. And I'm just wondering how you think um, those kind of less tangible activities actually relate to the production of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and how that can be just as valuable in relation to thinking about histories and how they're, they're um, I guess, shared and perpetuated. Um, Etienne, in the past, you've mentioned sound system culture. So I'm thinking mm -hmm. about these kind of alternative communal spaces where knowledge can be shared um, mm -hmm. and whether, you know, what value that has in the conversation around writing history. So um, whoever wants to take that, then please feel... Direct it somewhere, direct it somewhere. <laughs> Etienne. Okay. Um, and then Belinda, because you're hiding. I mean, my, I guess, yeah, my thesis kind of touches on that whole idea of, of those spaces and what importance they are. And I think, 
I think they're vital, um, but I also think that they're um, they're sort of uh, not seen. They're not given the same weight or importance as. And it goes back to the thing about writing and and speaking. I yeah. suppose. Mm. I mean, that's kind of. I think historically, African history hadn't been given enough kind of weight because um, there's a lot of orality and some sort of written text. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, and that goes back to, you know, the system we're all living in that we're trying to subvert in various ways. And so, but I think it's vital, um, I suppose, again, going back to this whole idea I've got about energy and how they feel and kind of, it's like a complex experience. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, in those kind of community spaces, depending on what you're doing, mm. like say you're doing music and there's vocals involved. So then you're kind of, there's the energy of that music in that space. And then there's also the narrative that's coming over through that music, and it's all kind of working together. And um, I think that that is 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 vital. And I mean, from a, I love what Belinda was saying about this kind of, um, I guess, uh, ancestral kind of continuation, mm. if you like. And I think for me, that's something. When I travel to Caribbean, when I work, I mean, I'm a, I'm a musician as well. I work with African musicians, Caribbean musicians, and I've kind of trained in sort of ancient and more modern kind of styles and it just seems to be something that's always you know Santismic culture to me is like a continuation of something that started 2,000 3,000 mm. years before do you know what I mean so I don't think you can you know I, I don't think it's a question in that sense and that it's, it's, it's vital mm-hmm. um, I agree I agree that it's so vital um, uh, writing is such a solitary well mainly is quite solitary like you know you have to be by yourself you have to be disciplined you have to be thinking uh, and I think it's you know it's so satisfying to have somewhere where you can come and share these things uh, and also receive from those who are doing the same that you thing that you're doing and to be able to share ideas and to exchange ideas uh, but it's, it doesn't just stop there as well these are like this is like family like a lot of the work that you're going to get as well is facilitated by those people that are part of your community so the more you're giving into that community the more you probably get mm-hmm. out of it I mean you get out of it as much as you put in. I've been part of several writing communities from like as a much younger writer to now. Like I've always been sort of part of a so like Roundhouse, Barbican Young Poets, Burn After Reading. Like and without those spaces, I don't think that my writing could have been as nurtured uh, as as it was mm. by that. Um, it's like for me anyway. Like the sort of the London, there's a, there's a certain community in London in terms of like writing, especially poetry, are just like family, you know. So. In that sense, it's important, but also that's opened doors in many other places as mm. well because, you know, people can always recommend each other or talk to each other, or if they can't do something, they suggest somebody else. That is also, like, a really weird, complex thing that keeps the work going because everybody's kind of trying to keep it alive. So, you know, mm. yeah. Um, for me, community is very important. And Born Free as well is, like, a very sort of, like, community-centred idea. So we try as much as we can to be, like involving other people and um, are very accepting of help, I guess, and, yeah, and expensive gifts. <laughs> but, no, nah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, community, I just think, I mean, yeah, I just think it's a no-brainer, like, for me, it's a no-brainer. Did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I, just briefly, the fact that, for us, the, the, pub, the magazine is kind of in the backdrop of the internet culture and this... Uh, people talking at each other and for us the magazine is supposed to be a space for people to speak and speak to each other and listen and to have the physical space where people can do that is 
it's, sometimes it feels more real than the actual publication. Like if mm. we if we've been able to make a space away from the internet for like an hour or so, where people can interact and which makes people feel happy and yeah. part of a community or the sense of belonging. It's not just a concept; it's like a part of your lived experience. And I'm wondering if um, you know, is it enough that those spaces exist? You create those spaces and kind of counter narratives come out of those is that enough you know that we have now different versions of history or or is it you know is it even necessary to then reconsider this you know this mainstream history or is it enough to do have multiple versions is think, that more satisfying i think you always need multiple versions yeah. but i do think that um that sort of mainstream narrative if you like is quite powerful so yeah. i mean if you can change it a little then that's useful too as well yeah. yeah great thank you so much so i want to just um see if we have any questions um i think there's been so much shared and i'm really grateful to to each of the panelists um for what they've shared with us so um it would be great to hear if there are any questions um or comments or interactions from you guys as well yeah hi at the front first and then yeah in the middle Hi there. Well, thanks, everyone. I thought those presentations were great. I wanted to um, actually ask Hansi a question. Um, as someone who's working primarily... I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who's working primarily inside institutions and with institutions, but you obviously engage with this kind of space-making activity, whether there's any strategies that you'd found were particularly successful in kind of trying to decenter some of the narratives within those institutions? Yeah, so I, I guess I started out my career um, very much in institutions. I became institutionalised very much, um, having you know worked at Tate. Um, um, I'm now kind of free from that, and I think as I've gone on in my career, I've become more and more centred on doing what I want <laughs> um, and not trying to be somebody that I'm not, frankly. Um, and I think that if, it, you know, magazines such as um, create spaces um, where people can do that. You know, as an early writer, I probably would have spent that extra day crafting my text to sound like a Freeze reviewer so that I can get published in mm. Freeze. Well, then I kind of realised that I didn't want to write those things or in that way. So that's my strategy, and it's just about having the confidence and then the space to kind of just be yourself. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but... Yeah. Sometimes that's the most powerful thing you can do in, 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 in an institution, actually, particularly. Um, yeah, when you're coming from an, a, a different perspective is to just hold your ground, actually. So, yeah, sorry, we had, did we have one in the middle? Or was that you putting your coat on? <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, if anybody can, uh, can answer, but I, I want to hear some more details about the archives on the continent or what artists, what institutions can do to make them more accessible, what is happening now with these archives on the continent, because these are all examples in London or uh, in collaboration maybe, so maybe somebody can uh, give a reply on that. 
Everyone looks at me. Yeah. Um, well, you're the archive guy. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I know way more about archives here than archives on the continent. Um, I know the narrative of the archive on the continent, which is very much, oh, the stuff's not taken care of and it's all degrading and we need money to kind of, to, you know, to stop that happening. And I think that there's some truth in that, but I know that that's not the only truth. But I don't feel qualified to kind of comment with detail on those things because mm. I... I know, a, I know a lot about here, a little bit about the Caribbean, a little bit less about the continent in terms of the kind of archival landscape there. Um, I, I mean, what I would say is that they definitely exist. There's work to be done. You know, there's, um, there's research to, to be undertaken, I think, to really um, start to make the most of the material that does exist on the continent. Um, I know that there's a big archive in Lagos around Festac, the festival um, in 77, uh, and yeah, there, there are lots. So it's it's a matter of research and time, I think, if you're interested. Um, but there, um, there are there's lots of material there. I think there is. I'm just thinking about it. So a lady I work with, she's um, she's working on the you know Fela Kuti. She's working on the Fela's archives, and it's kind of interesting because she's trying to do it independently. So there's that same sort of institutional independent kind of tension, if you like, going on for her in, in Nigeria at the moment. Um, and so, but then she does, which, you know, when I've spoken to her about the condition, she has also said just because of the climate, it's, uh, there yeah. is, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but then I suppose that's where I think that there's also um, this whole idea of kind of sustaining and community and kind of active engagement with things. That potentially is a strategy to kind of work alongside that material because you know, things might be degrading, but then people aren't degrading, people yeah. are surviving, you know? So Exactly, yeah. and I think it's also having a kind of expanded idea of what you think of as an archive. Mm -hmm. You know, you might go to some, you know, have a particular idea in mind that you want to research and think, actually, the best research I can do is to speak to this person. This person is the archive for this particular topic, so... Um, or, you know, this particular place. It might be a place as opposed to a room full of documents or... Um, yeah, so... Did anyone else want to add? Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say, um, from a personal point of view, um, what you said in particular, the um, poem about your mother, it actually really resonated with me that I could have written that. <laughs> and I'm sure there are other women that yeah. are you know, of a certain age that have been through the same sort of thing. How? Um, so I've got a question for yourself and a question for Etienne also. Um, for yourself, how um, do you want the end result to be? So you'll be writing, you're researching about your mother's relationship with yourself, but is it that you want a discussion with her? She may not want to talk to you. Mm. Um, the other members of your family, maybe they weren't treated in the same way that you were, maybe they don't see things the same way you do. <laughs> so that's quite a personal... Yeah. Um, um, no, it's cool. Um, I mean, my mum, like, are cool. Like, you know, we have a really good relationship, but... It, or a much better relationship. But I think what I'm more interested in... I think that's fine, but in terms of the writing stuff, I don't want her to feel attacked. I don't want her to think that it's an attack on her... It's just me telling my version of that situation. So what I would like, ideally, is to get to a point where I can say, hey, mum, uh, there's this book coming out with loads of poems about you. Or there's this, like, I would never play her that track, like, ever. But, like, I think I'm interested in getting to a point where she can, doesn't... I don't know if it's possible, 
but I, didn't, I would, don't want it to, to, to take that personal. I think like, it's the art and then there is me. And I know it's like a part of my person is in that, but it's my perspective. It's not the truth of the situation. It's my interpretation of that situation. So I'd like to get to a point where I can share my work with her and not feel a bit like that tension inside myself. Like, how is she going to take it? I want it to just be like, cool, you know. But yeah. I also have one for Sophia also, so the three of you. Um, <laughs> Etienne, um, we talked about sound systems. I was brought up in the sound system okay. era, so my son is a singer and my daughter's a DJ. Mm -hmm. um, I liked the way that you sort of spoke about sort of bringing that to um, what you're doing at the moment, research. Um, but then going back to working within the actual practical realms of working in the archives and trying to change things, mm -hmm. how realistic will it be for you to change those systems that have been going for years and years and years? Um, it depends at what level. I mean, I'm working with a group of other nerdy black archivists at the moment, but on, uh, do you know the 198 in um, 198 Gallery? Um, 198 Contemporary Learning and Arts, I think it's called, in Brixton. Um, and they've asked us to look at doing that for constituting their archive. And so I think the fact that they're a creative organisation and they're quite small, although they've been going for quite a while, there's space to do that and kind of create exam examples. And other people have done it in various ways of online as well. But I think at an institutional level, that's like a whole other debate. That's asked me in like 200 years. Because mm. <laughs> like, I think it takes, it takes time for things to filter through. And that's why I think independence is really important to kind of, I guess... Get, get those ideas kind of percolating and getting stuff happening but then I think ultimately those systems do have to change mainly because I think what's happening independently um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a value in it that people see I mean you know people I've been paid to do work and so people must see the value in that work do you know what I mean um, but it's just a case of more more people doing it and more value seen and then it will slowly kind of be integrated but then possibly co-opted as well so I don't know <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Sophia, okay, um, what you sorry, sorry, uh, you mentioned about um, the difficulty in um, bringing up people's um, personal histories in the classroom and maybe making that part of the curriculum. Um, my daughter, I had to send her to Howard University in America. Just um, and before that, we did a lot of reading and talking and so on about history. But it seems that nothing much has changed. I mean, she's twenty-seven now. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like I said, it's. The teachers who are really passionate, they are the ones who really enrich their class and teach about the things that they are interested in, they have knowledge of, and they know how to teach because it's their class who they teach all the time. But until those people change, um, I, don't, I don't know if there's any point in having like government-wide initiatives. Like, because if, if a subject is taught without soul, children know if a teacher doesn't care about oh something, God, and children know if teachers are ticking boxes. So... Yeah. Just picking up on the thing about sound system, this kind of convivial space idea is um, I think that those spaces are where those people can potentially be changed as well. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's not always, I think directives don't change, they, they might change by force, but they don't change you inside. But I think sometimes it's through those kind of close kind of interactions and mm -hmm. kind of informal interactions, I suppose, that you can start to see, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe my preconceptions about this are actually wrong and I understand this a bit better. So I think. That, in that sense as well, creating community spaces that are open to changing people that maybe aren't from those communities even, uh, is, is, is something to think about too. Yeah, don't leave it to the teachers, don't leave it to the school. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had another question at the back as well. 
Hi everyone. Um, this is a question for Etienne. Okay. Um, hey. Hi. <laughs> um, so I've just started working at the GPI. Okay. And okay. Um, I guess my question is, how do you maintain the radicalism of that space uh, now that we're at a point in history where I suppose that space has been removed from some of the grassroots activity of the current day? Um, and secondly, in my other role, I am in an institution and I am trying really, really hard to, I guess, change a lot of very lazy racist attitudes and change a lot of very lazy classes attitudes. And I am really remiss to believe that that effort is a waste of time because there are young people who are going on these programs who come from particular backgrounds and I feel strongly that there should be someone advocating for them at kind of program and strategy level. Um, so I guess I'm looking for some sort of word of encouragement. It's sort of like, how do you, as a lone person in a white organisation, keep the momentum going? So that's sort of two questions. Can okay. everyone feel um, free to answer? I'll do the, um, I'll start the radicalism one. I think it's basically about introducing that material to younger people. That's, that's in, it, I know it sounds really basic, but that's basically what it to me what it is is that I think just the nature of the nature of age one thing and also just as you say the movement of organizations is like things might start with this kind of fire and then they they that, that's not maintained and I think that's kind of natural in some ways but then I think the intergenerational spaces where you can kind of some of that I think at the beginning I called it quality of actions because that archive, when you look at the archive, you see the kind of quality of what they were doing at the time in terms of trying to really change things and changing things. Um, and I think it's just more about kind of introduction to, to just kind of open a door to younger minds, be like, okay, this was going on. This is kind of why this is like this. Um, what do you think? So I, that's, that's how I would think about maintaining it. The other question, that's harder. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think it is important for, you know, for people to be in those places. But I just think it's also important to be, what I've learned is to be quite sort of quietly optimistic, but also very realistic about what you can achieve in those spaces. Do you I know think I mean? practising self-care is essential, actually, <laughs> mm -hmm. when you find yourself in those positions, because you also have to look after yourself, because you'll find that you're all, you know, you're regularly up against... Um, opposition, or you find that you're very, very slightly bending yourself just a little bit to the left every day, you know, or to the right, or what, whatever it is, and before you know it, you know, um, it, it can be quite damaging to your soul or you as an individual. So I think it's also, yeah, it's also that. Um, yeah, so if we, if we don't have any more questions, maybe we do. Maybe we don't, no. Okay. Well, I just want to say a massive thank you to each of you. I've really enjoyed getting to know your, you. all of you and your work more. And, um, yeah, thank you all for your questions. And, yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of the fair. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for coming. Thank you.